Hello and welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine, led by Chief Medical Officer of the American Lung Association, Dr. Albert Rizzo. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. We are fortunate for today's discussion that we have an academic researcher in behavioral health and nutrition, a dietitian, nutritionist, and trained smoking cessation counselor, and a primary care physician researcher who have been working together on a topic that can help so many implications for our clinical impact. I want to start out by having each of you give us a brief overview of your current roles, affiliations, and how you developed the interest in today's topic of novel clinical interventions in cardiovascular disease, specifically around the topic of sleep quality and smoking behavior. Freddie, can we start with you? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I'm Freddie Patterson. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Behavioral Health and Nutrition in the College of Health Sciences at the University of Delaware. And really, I got into today's topic, which is really about sleep and smoking cessation and pulmonary health in high-risk populations. I really got into that from a background of smoking cessation. I was a smoking cessation counselor for almost 10 years at the University of Pennsylvania. And from there, I learned about what were the things that interfered with people's ability to quit smoking. And that was one of my first introductions to sleep as being an important determinant of that trajectory of smoking cessation. And later, as I developed my own research in this area, you know, we, we, it's quite well known that insomnia is a clinical metric of withdrawal and that is a predictor of relapse. So I think that sort of converged those worlds for me um, as, as I moved forward in my research. Very good. And, and Denise, can you tell us about how you got here? Sure. Hi, I'm Denise Taylor. I'm the project manager for tobacco cessation at Christiana Care. And I collaborate closely with Freddie at University of Delaware. I'm also a registered dietitian by training. And throughout my career, I've been involved with cardiovascular disease prevention in general, whether it's related to smoking or diet and the research around that, and then also how that translates into clinical care. So we at Christiana Care have an inpatient tobacco treatment program, and we collaborated with Dr. Patterson at University of Delaware to help reach patients at a teachable moment and help them stay quit after a hospital stay. So we've worked closely on research related to that, and since then have collaborated on some research related to sleep and smoking that took place at University of Delaware. Thank you, Denise. And Heather? It's great to be here. My name is Heather Bittner-Fagan. I'm a primary care physician and researcher at Christiana Care. I came to work with this wonderful team because my research of late has been very much centered around lung cancer screening. And as you know, Al, we see lung cancer screening as a really important, crucial, teachable moment to hopefully help people to quit smoking. Absolutely. Can't agree more. So in our pre-call, we did talk about the fact that many of these things that we learn about how we can become healthier involve behavioral change. And in and of itself sounds very challenging. And I know uh, the work that you've all done revolves around how sleep and whether or not we smoke or not can play a role in the cardiovascular 
prevention that we're talking about, and for that matter, pulmonary health as well. So can we get into a little more specific research that, that's been done? I know Freddie's probably done uh, the bulk of that, and we will start out with her, but then talk about how that can translate into clinical interventions uh, that Denise might use or Heather might use in her practice. Uh, so you could talk about that, maybe starting out with Freddie. Yeah, how some of my work has translated into interventions. So I think one of the main areas, particularly as it pertains to cardiovascular health, you know, we did a lot of observational work and a lot of work looking into the role of access to smoking cessation treatments. And we, we did focus groups and we learned that treatment-seeking smokers were frustrated, particularly those of lower income, were frustrated about their inability to be able to access um, treatment and to get FDA approved treatments for smoking cessation. So that led, and actually my work with Denise here, um, that led us to develop a protocol and a program where we would train food pantry personnel to be smoking cessation counselors um, so that they could deliver smoking cessation treatment right at the source uh, with a captured population. And that across the state of Delaware, that was probably one of our most successful treatments that we delivered in terms of getting people who maybe would not have otherwise considered quitting smoking to actually try to quit smoking. I know I didn't really get into the sleep piece there, but Denise, do you want to talk any more about that intervention we did? Because I think that was really work that brought us together. Just that it's sort of goes along with the whole theme that Heather talked about too, is just at a teachable moment. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether it's in the hospital and they had a heart attack or it's at the food pantry, it's somewhere they come back to regular regularly with people that they trust or whether it's during lung cancer screening, sort of meeting people where they are at a, a good time for them to make the behavior change is sort of an important theme in all of this. And getting folks to come back again is if they're already coming to the food pantry to pick up their, you know, essential items, then it's a great time to be able to repeatedly meet with them. We do the same thing with cardiac rehab, for example, patients are coming back regularly. And so we, or pulmonary rehab, we can help them quit smoking at the same time with meeting with the counselor. Now you bring up a point that's so popular during COVID now is not just the message, but the trusted messenger that delivers it. Uh, Certainly around vaccine hesitancy as the lung association, we've had to deal with getting the science out, but then also going to the level of the individual, whether it's at their churches or as you mentioned, the food pantries, just to get somebody trusted in that community who can deliver the message. And I switch over to Heather for a second and continue on the smoking cessation theme. I know clinicians are busy and I know Denise, Heather, a lot of what you've done is being able to figure out how workflow and practices, whether it's smoking cessation or referral to lung cancer screening, can be implemented in a way that's more efficient. Can you speak on that a little bit, Heather? Let me first say, because I think it's really funny, uh, I literally wrote down as you were talking, trusted 
messenger. And I think that it's really important to understand that primary care and the teams that function in primary care are very often the trusted messenger for these types of messages, especially smoking, which as you know, the greater literature really talks about the stigma of smoking and how people are somewhat reluctant to engage in conversations about their smoking, especially with the healthcare system, right? Because we're the people that are probably most likely to be a little bit judgy about that. So I think that there's a couple of things that I would underscore from this. So first, as physicians, we are becoming increasingly aware of the importance of sleep in many health outcomes. So this is really clinically applicable for us to think about, you know, smoking cessation. As Freddie said, we know that people want to quit. They know they should quit. So where's the gap? What's getting in the way? And what this research shows is that certainly sleeping might be the thing to take on in order to move that patient over that gap to actually taking action. The other thing that Freddie and Denise's work really shows is the importance of teamwork. People do trust the primary care physician. They do you know, want to know that their primary care physician is telling them to quit smoking and is helping them quit smoking. But given the average amount of time that a primary care physician has with the patient, we really have to think about how do we build a system and a team around that so that the help that the patient is getting is not just from that person. And it's not just in that face-to-face moment of the visit. The empathy piece. Yeah. So I, I, I think that, you know, and this really brings in sort of the pantry, the food pantry study, where a lot of times, you know, in, in our qualitative work and our focus groups with our smokers, you know, they do say like, you know, there's being a closet smoker is not unheard of. There are quite a few smokers who feel the stigma, who feel the shame, and they're not, they're not that willing to come out and say, yes, I'm a smoker and I need help. And sometimes, you know, when they talk to their physician, that, you know, they may be, there may be some fear of what the retribution may be for, for being a smoker. So I think when we talk about access to treatment, I think sometimes there is room for community, you know, people from the community to be trained and to become modalities for delivering healthcare. And well, maybe healthcare is a little bit strong, but certainly health coaching and helping, you know, bring about more positive behaviors um, among people, because I think community personnel, they have the capacity to do that, to be trained to, to do these things. And I think that that is an avenue that can allow us to reach populations that may not otherwise be willing or want to go to their doctor. And I think that's all part of, you know, systems-based approaches to preventative medicine, where we leverage and we use all these different stakeholders um, to help bring about better health behaviors and better health outcomes. Can I go back to Denise for a second then? I know you're mainly doing an inpatient program at Christina Care, which I'm very proud of that. It's been my institution for all my time in practice these last 30 years in Delaware. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that got implemented and also 
How does it work once the patient leaves? I know you have the Delaware Quit Line, which you work with closely as well. Sure. Thanks, Al. I know that, or we know that intervention in the hospital is only effective if it's followed up with at least a month of cessation support. So we try to visit the patient at the hospital in the bedside, but more importantly, we follow up with them post-discharge with an automated texting or phone service to make sure that they get connected to care post-discharge. So we coordinate with the Delaware Quit Line. And through Delaware's Quitline, which is one of the most robust in the country, we're able to provide free face-to-face counseling, free telephone counseling, and at no charge, all seven FDA-approved medications, including combination therapy. So the you know, a patient can get the patches and the gum, which we know is better than just one or the other. They also can get free varenicline, which Dr. Patterson and I have worked closely on studying in relation to sleep. So it's it's really a great service that a lot of folks don't know about. So I think what Heather said and what Freddie said is that, you know, people want to quit, but a lot of times they don't know that this free service is available in the community to them when they're ready. Yeah, you're right. Delaware's quit line is certainly uh, among the best uh, in the country. I just want to add to that, that Christiana Care does have a direct referral option to the Delaware quit line and quit lines work. The Delaware quit line works. And so that's another way that you can build systems to assist patients. Good. Wanted to get back to the, the sleep aspect of some of this. I know as a pulmonary physician, I mainly see patients because of sleep apnea, which is certainly one of the more common sleep disorders. And actually was lucky enough to do some work with Freddie around that. But I think just sleep in general, and maybe Heather then can comment on that, is not always given a fair shake with regard to how we deal with that when a patient talks about their symptoms and whether or not they're getting proper sleep. And I know Freddie's work has shown that there's a big difference in how people's quality of life is affected by things like circadian rhythm and lack of sleep. And so, Freddie, can I turn it back to you for a bit to talk about the sleep issues? Yeah, for sure. So some of our other work in terms of smoking cessation is we learned that when we try to help quitting treatment-seeking smokers improve their sleep health, we found that when as smokers that if we could, we delivered an intervention three weeks in the three weeks leading up to a smoking cessation quit attempt. We've found that improving that pre-treatment sleep uh, improved the odds of cessation after quitting. And that was a really quite a profound finding. And that those who improved their sleep the most prior to quitting had the most success. So that was a very encouraging result. In another study that we have ongoing, we have a, we have a cohort of about 300 African-American smokers who are at risk for pulmonary disease. So they have early stage cardiopulmonary disorder. And what we studied in them was the relationship. So we all know that smoking is a huge risk factor for COPD. And what we were really interested in seeing was the extent to which sleep may alter that relationship. So we hypothesized that among those smokers, if they were sleeping better, that that may, we wanted to see if whether that improved some of their functional outcomes. So 
Uh, we studied this in a sample of about 200 smokers. And what we found was that indeed, if they had a better sleep duration and a higher sleep efficiency, uh, meaning that of the time they spent in bed, they, they had a higher percentage of time being asleep. And um, what we found was that improvements, you know, amongst heavier smokers who had better sleep duration and sleep efficiency, they actually walked significantly further in the six minute walk test. So that was really an exciting finding for us. And of course, we all know that you know, for people diagnosed with COPD, um, particularly smokers diagnosed with COPD, quitting smoking is always going to be the first line of treatment for COPD. We always want those folks to quit smoking. But what these results showed as well was that if we could improve their sleep as well, their sleep duration and their sleep efficiency, that that may also have positive benefits for their functional capacity. So that was that was a really interesting finding for us that definitely has some clinical implications. No, that, that's a great point. Sleep wellness certainly as compared to just treating the diseases that manifest themselves. Um, can I switch over to Heather and see what her comments are on the care and the primary care practice with regard to sleep? So I'd like to first underscore what Freddie said. There's a big difference between sleep health and diagnosing diseases of sleep. In some ways, the traditional medical training and practice is almost more conducive to understanding and acting upon sleep disease. What is new and really pushed to the forefront by work in the last 10 years or so is this idea of addressing sleep health. Primary care physicians, for the most part, I would argue are pretty aware that sleep hygiene, sleep health, sleep wellness affect multiple aspects of health and wellness. We know that when people sleep better, their mood is better. They're better able to lose weight. And thanks to Freddie's research, we know that they're better able to quit smoking. So that evidence certainly pushes us to consider that more when we're addressing the needs of the patient. One of the challenges, though, is that the problems that people have with sleep can vary from pretty simple to pretty complex. So sometimes it might be as simple as finding out that someone started a new medication that has completely disrupted their sleep um, or that they're leaving a TV on in their room at night. And these are things that we can rather quickly identify and advise and hopefully get the change that we need to help people start sleeping. But often it's a lot more complex than that. There are multiple pillars that people need to consider and address in order to get to sleep wellness. At Christiana Care, we have embedded psychologists in our practice. I myself have been very lucky to have this in my practice. And so what I will often do is refer a patient for a specific dedicated conversation around their particular sleep health and hygiene. That's fabulous, Heather. I didn't know that Christiana Care had that. That's what's really, really encouraging. Yeah, I think the model that we're talking about here today with the three of you is certainly not typical of everywhere, but I'm hoping that this is certainly a, a, a learning experience for people who are listening to the podcast. I wanted to 
to see if there's other issues that you all wanted to bring up. We've covered a fair amount, and there's certainly a lot more that can be, be gleaned from the different research you've done. But any other things as far as what you see the future might be changing as far as primary care? I think, Heather, you touched a lot on what's in place now. Freddie or Denise, with regard to the smoking cessation aspect and, and, and how that might be approached better with the sleep knowledge that you may have on your patients. The take-home messages, I think, are... I think we have to think more broadly about healthcare delivery and, you know, we have to be willing to embrace different models and think about how to improve our evidence base, you know, and, and thinking about how can we engage, like, for example, we're doing a lot of work right now on home environment and built environment. So how features so we know that built environment, so for example, your streetscape, um, your access to fruits and vegetables, your access to parks and recreational facilities, how that relates to your physical activity. And there are data to show that if you live near a park, if you live near bicycle paths um, and parks that are well kept and maintained, there's a higher odds that you're going to meet your, um, you know, 7,500 or 10,000 steps per day. You're just going to walk more, right? So we know that to be true. A parallel to that, we're thinking about the home environment. So sedentary behavior, you know, it's being coined by some as being the new smoking, right? Like sitting too much, even in people who are physically active. So they meet the physical activity um, recommendations of 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity every day, even among those people. And I'm sort of looking at myself right now. So I meet the physical, I know, right. I meet the physical activity recommendations, but I'd spend a good, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, if not more, just sitting here, right at my desk or driving to and from work or, you know, watching TV at night or whatever we all do that we as being highly sedentary, have a higher odds of cardiovascular disease and some cardiometabolic conditions than people who meet physical activity guidelines and are less sedentary, right? So we've started thinking about the home environment and well, how do our houses contribute, how our homes are designed? How does that contribute to how sedentary you are? So this is, you know, this is very new to us, but I guess my point in terms of the take-home point is healthcare does not just happen in a doctor's office. And we have to think carefully about how we engineer our lives and how we build our spaces and how we interact with those spaces as being a fabric of public health and health promotion. And, and care for people. So it's not, and I think that is what I would encourage people to sort of take that broader paradigm to healthcare and, and health delivery. Great point. Well, I want to thank all of you uh, for the time today. And certainly I've learned some things and I'm hoping that our listeners have as well. So thank you again. Thank you, Al. For more pulmonary and critical care content, visit our website, consultant360.com.